If we could take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 31 and verse 22, the title of our message is One of a Kind. And if you're watching online, all these things here are not props I brought in for the sermon. I don't have the creativity for that, but it is for VBS this week here at Sugarland Bible Church. A lot of people have been working hard on it, a lot of people are participating. Um, if you can take up a challenge from me, I would appreciate it. The challenge is just to, to pray for it this week. Just a couple minutes in your prayer life each day. The 12th, I think it starts, which is tomorrow, through the uh, 16th, which is Friday. A lot of uh, very young people, believe it or not, get impacted eternally by Vacation Bible School. Um, Can I see a show of hands, by the way, if you came to know Jesus in Vacation Bible School? Is there anybody? We've got a couple hands up here. My wife, of course. And... God, I don't know what it is, but he chooses to use Vacation Bible School in a really significant way in people's lives. We want we want the Lord to work that way this week in this church. Amen. God, of course, as we've been moving through the book of Genesis, is dealing with the nation of Israel. Israel, of course, is a big deal. It's birth because God is going to bless the world through Israel. Those blessings are manifold, but not the least of which is Jesus himself, who was Jewish. So the Messiah is going to come to the world through this special nation that God is raising up. To raise up the nation of Israel, God gave promises to Abraham, and those promises were transferred to his son Isaac, and now those promises are being transferred to Isaac's son Jacob. God is working with Jacob here in the section that we have been dealing with as of late in a very strategic way. Jacob, having been born in what the Bible calls the land of his nativity, the land of Canaan, that would be the circle there um, in the west, as you know, deceived his brother. His brother Esau was in a murderous rage, forcing Jacob to travel up north, the circle up north, to a land called Haran. Jacob has been in the land of Haran, as we have studied, for 20 years, which is a long time. And he went into the land of Haran with just the clothes on his back, we think. And in the process, God has been with him every step of the way where he has become very wealthy. He actually came into Haran as a single man. Now he's got two wives. Imagine that. And through those two wives and two maidservants that went with each wife, according to tradition of the day, he now has a family consisting of 11 sons and one daughter. The 11 sons are going to become Israel's 12 tribes. The only one missing is Benjamin, and that's because he hasn't been born yet. He's going to be born in Genesis 35. So you can clearly see what God is doing through these circumstances is he's raising up a nation. And it's kind of interesting to me that God is working in Jacob's life this way, even though Jacob is fleeing. I mean, he left Canaan and went into Haran under uncomfortable circumstances, and yet God is at work. And I hope that encourages you. It certainly encourages me because we in this life can go through a lot of uncomfortable circumstances. Amen. What we have to understand is through those uncomfortable circumstances, God is always at work. I mean, here he's fleeing. He's a fugitive. And as we have studied, he's been cheated multiple times. And God doesn't say, oh, no, I can't work if you're a fugitive and I can't work if you're being oppressed. God just keeps working. 
and works independent of our circumstances. So whatever circumstances you're in, um, good from the human perspective, bad from the human perspective, what we have to understand as we walk with the Lord is it does, it's, it's in no way derailing God's purpose for your life. God's purposes for your life are being executed. When times are good, from the human perspective, and when times are difficult. At this point, Jacob, after 20 years of this, has received a word from the Lord. He wants to leave Haran, and he wants to go back to the land of his birth, Canaan. God told him to leave, and he's got some, uh, as Ricky said to Lucy, you got some splaining to do. Um, he's got two wives who knew nothing other than Haran. They didn't know anything about Canaan. And he's just engaged in a conversation convincing them that we're taking everybody now and we're leaving everything you know and we're going back to Canaan. And his wives, as we have studied, acquiesce to that. And they have left while Laban, who has been oppressing Jacob, is not aware that Jacob had left. And so here's where we pick up the story as we learn of Laban's pursuit. First we have the report gets to Laban. It says in verse 22, Genesis 31, when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. So when you go back to verse 19... And also verse 20, you learned that Jacob had done this while Laban was out shearing the sheep. Verse 20 says, and Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. This is why Laban is caught off guard. In fact, according to verse 22, I believe it is, that we just read, it took Laban until the third day to figure out what had happened. Why the third day? Well, it may have something to do with uh, Genesis 30 and verse 36 where it says, And he, that's Laban, put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. When Jacob entered into a sort of a contractual arrangement with Laban. Laban set it up so that Jacob would not prosper. Laban, however, was not counting on God. Uh, When the world has deserted you, it's wonderful to know that God will show up and be your advocate. That's the sort of thing that's happened to Jacob. Um, He got the bad side of a deal, and yet God continues to prosper him. And Laban himself, by separating the flocks, about a three days journey, that's maybe why it took Laban three days to figure out what had happened. But at any rate, Laban now from Haran chases Jacob, who was fleeing Haran and going back to Canaan. It says in verse 23, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days journey and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. Notice that Laban finally overtook Jacob after a seven day interval. Now I I find this interesting related to seven days because that's not the first time we've heard About seven days in the book of Genesis, you'll remember the creation week was six days and God rested on the seventh. We believe that those creation days are ordinary days because it says first day, second day, third day. And every time that number is used with the Hebrew word yom, day, it means a literal 24-hour time period. And beyond that, at the conclusion of each day, God makes the statement there was evening and morning. That's talking about a normal earth rotation, I guess we could say. 
And later on in the book of Exodus, same author, Moses, said God deliberately did it this way because people say, you mean God did it that fast? He created the world in six days. He did it that fast. My question is, why did it take him so long? Why did he deliberately stretch it out into six 24-hour days? Well, he was setting up a pattern for the Hebrew work week. They're to work six days and rest on the seventh in the same way. You'll find that in Exodus 20, Exodus 31. And the fact of the matter is, we believe here at Sugarland Bible Church in the 24-hour days of creation. We have no ambition to consult Charles Darwin. Of course, I can't consult him because he's dead. All of these scientists with their ancient ages and try to ram it back into the Scripture because the Scripture does not teach what they say it teaches. They're all trying to argue that each day is an age of billions of years each, and that's simply not what the Bible says. It says six 24-hour days. Now, I bring this up because nobody thinks that Laban chasing Jacob took seven million years, right? I mean, I w- nobody interprets Genesis 31:23 that way. It says he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days. That's yom. Uh, here it's plural with a number. And every time that same uh, pattern is linguistic pattern is used, it always refers to a literal 24-hour day time period. So you know you're being deceived by a false doctrine when you're forced to interpret one part of the Bible one way and then interpret another part of the Bible a different way, even though it's the exact same Hebrew word and structure. Of course, we acknowledge that the word day can mean different things depending on the context. Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis writes, back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. Back in my father's day, that's an age, it took 10 days. Now that's 10 24-hour days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. That would be the daylight section, 12 hours of a day. So you figure out what the word day means based on its context. And when you look at 10 days there, and although although the word day means different things in that sentence, when it says 10 days, it's obviously 10 24-hour days. When God says he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, that obviously means six 24-hour days. And I would use the that method to approach Genesis 1 that way, and I would use that same method to approach verse 23 that way, because nobody thinks it took Laban seven million or seven billion or seven trillion years to catch Jacob. I just had to get that out of my system. Sorry about that. No extra charge for that, by the way. But it goes on and it says, When he took his kinsmen with him and he pursued them a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. Why did it take him this long, seven days? Um, Because Laban was moving faster than Jacob. Why was Jacob moving so slow? Now he has a family with him. He's got two wives and he's got 11 sons and he's got two maidservants and he's got one daughter and he's got all this cattle now because God has blessed the work of his hands and he's moving a little slower than Laban. But Laban finally catches Jacob in what's called the mountains of Gilead. That's um, essentially a mountain chain, mountain range there in the Transjordan. If you look at that circle in the west, it's um, a mountain area, a mountainous area, which would be west of the Jordan, sometimes called the Transjordan. If you look back at verse 21, it says that's where Jacob was fleeing to. He's ultimately not settled in the Transjordan. He wants to make his way into the land of his birth, Canaan. But it's a distance of about 300 miles 
Um, we have a tendency to kind of look at stories like this, historical accounts in the Bible, through our own lens, where world travel is very easy for us. But here is Jacob having to go through all of this with a large family, large cattle, and he's moving for 300 miles. He's in the mountains of Gilead, and so Laban finally catches him there. If you look at verse 24, you discover that Laban has been warned by God himself. He's received a vision a dream from God. And you see that there in verse 24. It says, And God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. This is not the first time God has shown up in a dream to a pagan to protect God's people. God did the same thing on behalf of Abraham through a man named Abimelech. You remember Abraham had basically told a lie regarding Sarah. Uh, If anybody asks you here in Gerar, you know, who you are, don't don't say you're married to me because they're going to kill me and take you. Because Sarah was very beautiful. How did Abimelech finally become aware that he should not touch Sarah? Well, God showed up in a dream and gave to Abimelech a dream. This is a chart that gives you all of the events in Abraham's life. And here I'm referring to, uh, what is it, number 12 there underlined. It says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. And said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Wow, what a dream that must have been. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. This issue of dreams is very interesting. God oftentimes warns pagans about doing something bad against God's people through a dream. You'll remember that prior to Christ's crucifixion, Pilate's wife, late in Matthew's gospel, as it's recorded, had a dream. And she said, referring now to her husband, you don't want anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is innocent. Because I had a dream last night that Jesus of Nazareth is an innocent man. And that's why Pilate, you know, sort of took all the measures that he took to sort of... um, eradicate culpability, personal culpability, personal blameworthiness for Christ's death. Pilate, you remember, washed his hands and said, it's not my choice. When in fact, when you study Matthew's account very carefully, Pilate is partly to blame, but he was warned in a dream. And it wasn't him that was warned. It was his wife that was warned. I don't know how much to go into this because some may accuse me of heresy by even talking about it. There's a book out by Tom Doyle. The name of it escapes me. And he's no lightweight. He was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. His orthodoxy is not in any way suspect. But in this particular book, he talks about how Muslims all over the world are having dreams. And they're having dreams about Jesus. And they're being warned against turning against Jesus. Um, They're being warned against not persecuting the followers of Jesus. uh, This is something that they probably won't talk about on CNN because I wish the folks at CNN would have a dream or two from God. But it is something that is, according to Tom Doyle, a a phenomenon and a reality that is happening worldwide. And it's somewhat interesting that as people are waking up from these dreams, they're having a different attitude or a different perspective concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and they are actually seeking out spiritual truth. How, if Jesus is real, how can I be saved? Now, is such a thing occurring? I'll leave that for your own 
imagination and analysis. Um, I just find it very interesting that such a thing is being reported by credible sources. I, I want it to be true. I hope it is true. I guess my back is a little up because we've had so much false doctrine come into the church. I'm thinking, well, here we go again. But the Tom Doyle book, I think, is very, very interesting. It's very, very convicting. Let me put it this way. I don't think I would put it past God to do something like this. I hope it is God. I I pray it is God. Because as I'm reading my Bible, God is doing this sort of thing all of the time with pagans. He did it with uh, Abimelech. He is doing it again here with Laban. He, he did it with Pilate's wife. And I just say, if the Lord is doing it, I don't want to be coming against it. It's something that's desperately needed. People need to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is. They they need to wake up to the reality that if you attack and come against God's people, then God himself takes that very personally. You remember what uh, Saul of Tarsus said, who was leading the first attack against the church as recorded in the book of Acts. God said to Saul of Tarsus in a vision in Acts chapter 9, Saul Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute my church? Why do you persecute my children? Why do you persecute my people? He said, why do you persecute me? I'm the head, as Paul will later develop in his epistles. The church is the body. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. And I would say this to anybody uh, here in the United States. I would say this to anybody worldwide. That if you're contemplating harm against God's people, you better think twice about that. Because there is a God in heaven that moves his hand on behalf of his people. And I would simply say this, payday someday. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but payday Someday. And you'll notice here that God is looking out for Jacob as he gives to Laban this dream. The dream was, don't talk Jacob into coming back with you to Haran. Don't even talk to him about leaving Haran. Laban wanted Jacob to stay because Laban understood that it was Jacob's presence in Haran that was causing Laban to prosper. Laban didn't want that taken away. And he had every um, tool at his disposal to coerce Jacob into making a choice, to coerce Laban into making a choice. And God showed up in a dream and said, be careful about that. Be careful what you're doing. As the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 2, verse 8, concerning the nation of Israel, He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. The apple of God's eye in that context is a, it's like the pupil of your eye. You come against the things of God, whether it's God's church or whether it's the nation of Israel, it's like you're taking your finger and you're jamming it into God's face, jamming it into his eyeball and daring him to act. This is the the stupidity of what unbelievers do. And sometimes God even has compassion and grace on the unbelievers and he shows up through different manifestations and says you better watch yourself very carefully because you're tampering with forces that you probably aren't even aware of. And this is what God has done to Laban. It's what slowed Laban's steps down some. I think there's every indication that Laban was either going to harm Jacob, perhaps kill Jacob, but at the very least coerce Jacob. And God says, be careful about that. So you go down to verse 25, and now Laban finally catches Jacob. And it says there in verse 25, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent 
in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen encamped in the hill country of Gilead. It's a description of two encampments in the Transjordan, the same geographical area. And just by way of noticing something, you'll notice all of these geographical details. Country of Gilead, hill country. You know, seven days. Uh, verse 21, they cross the river, the, we said last week, the Euphrates River. The Bible does not narrate these events as if you're reading Jack and the Beanstalk or Veggie Tales. The Bible narrates these events as historical accounts. That's why it gives you geographical markers and it gives you the names of people. Whoever wrote this, we believe Moses was the ultimate compiler. It seems pretty obvious as you study this that Moses was relying upon eyewitnesses that were actually there that saw these things transpire. I bring this up over and over again because the culture is trying to convince us that the real history is in the public school classroom under the person with the Ph.D. in history. And you guys in the church, you're just doing the religious thing. They try to drive a wedge between spirituality and history. The Bible knows no such compartmentalization. It knows no categorization like that. Ultimately, the Bible's purpose is spiritual, but it took place in a context which is historically credible. Uh, More on that as we progress. So Laban catches Jacob, and Laban, although he does not physically attack Jacob, he verbally attacks him. He makes a number of false accusations. You see those verse 26 through about the middle of verse 28. What does he accuse Jacob of? First of all, he says, you left in secret. Verse 26. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? I mean, you left without me knowing. He accuses him of leaving without a proper feast or a proper celebration. You see that there in verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and songs, timbrel and lyre? That's a reference to a tambourine and harp. In the ancient Near East, when they had a celebration for someone, it involved eating and it involved music. You see that there in the famous account of the prodigal son, you remember. Luke 15, verse 25, when the prodigal returned, the father said, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Verse 25, the older son, who had been obedient, didn't like that. It says, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Over in Luke 15, 29 and 30, the older son sort of complains, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have spent serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat to eat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you know how that story ends, where the father sort of rebukes the son and says, look, he he was dead, now he's alive. The prodigal, why should we not celebrate? I remember when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I had made the decision to trust Christ for salvation. The gentleman that led me to Christ led me through that process of faith alone in Christ alone, which really is not a process. It's a single step. And I remember at the conclusion of that sort of conversation, we were sort of in a back room, the Bible study was meeting in the front room. He came back in 
and he sort of introduced me as a new born child of God. And he said this, he said, the angels are celebrating. That's why the the father was so joyful at the returning of the, the son. And I'm here to tell you that if you're not saved, God wants you to get saved. And once you get saved by trusting in Christ alone, there is a all out <laughs> celebration in heaven. The likes of which we probably can't even hear or understand until we get to the other side of glory. Because God loves people. And that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it? God wants to see people saved. He wants to see people in heaven with him. There's a celebration there in Luke chapter 15. This kind of celebration was common in the ancient Near East. It's done with the best of intentions. Unfortunately, Laban's intentions, as we're studying here, are not very good. In fact, they're wicked. In fact, he is concealing his his true intentions, which we're going to discover in a minute. But I would have given you the common, the common feast. Laban complains against Jacob because you left without a kiss. <laughs> Verse 28. I mean, not only did you leave in secret, not only did you not allow me in Haran to give you the proper feast, but you didn't even allow me to give you the proper kiss. Verse 28 says, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Wasn't Jesus uh, betrayed with a kiss? I mean, just because someone is speaking in this real kind of spiritual language doesn't mean their intentions are pure. pure. Luke 22, verse 48 of Judas. It says, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Think about that. The ultimate act of treachery, the ultimate act of being a traitor, the ultimate act of being a rebel. And I want you to understand that when Judas did this, he broke Jesus' heart. And the reason I say that is all the way through the Gospels, Jesus keeps referring to Judas as friend. That's why the psalmists predicting this say, He who is my friend has lifted up his heel against me. And there is Judas right to the end, betraying a relationship with a kiss, selling out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, not even gold, which is more valuable than silver. But 30 pieces of silver, that was his price. And he sort of seals the deal there with a kiss. Interesting thing about Jesus is he is our high priest. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 16 talk about that. And you may be in a situation today where you've been betrayed by someone really close to you. And you think that God doesn't understand. I'm here to tell you he understands exactly. Because he's been through that circumstance himself. Judas sealing the deal with a kiss. You sort of see Laban, you know, masking his true intentions with, I really, I really wanted to give you a feast and, uh, I really wanted to give you a kiss. Laban comes to his wrong conclusion there at the end of verse 28. Now you have done foolishly. Laban is lying right through his teeth. How do we know that? Because all you have to do is look at the next verse, verse uh, 29. You see Laban's true desire. Verse 29 says, it is in my power to do you harm. That's what Laban wanted to do. He wanted to do harm to Jacob. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful. This is the dream. Be careful 
that you do not speak either good or bad to Jacob. I have the power to destroy you. I have the power to kill you. I have the power to coerce you. I have the power to take all of your family, all of your wealth away, and perhaps you in the process, and drag you all the way back to Haran. And that was my intention. It's just God showed up in a dream. Warned me. Warn me not to do this. It's very interesting how people, and we all have this ability as lost human beings, to mask our true intentions under the veneer of supposedly doing good. We have the ability to do the right thing with the wrong motive. We all have that capacity. In fact, if you want a textbook example of it, it's Judas Iscariot. In John 12, verses 4 through 6, it says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, intending intending to betray him. The people watching Judas didn't know his motive. But his motive, which was wicked, was there. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this has to do with the sisters, Mary in this case, I believe it was, who broke the vase um, of alabaster oil, I think it was, broke it, and began to pour it on Jesus, a beautiful act of her worship to him because she who is forgiven much, loves much. And she just wanted to worship the Lord, and Judas saw that and he didn't like it. He didn't like it because it was expensive. Now he said this, this is Judas, not because he was concerned about the poor, You mean everybody today that talks about the poor really isn't equally concerned about the poor? I I hear a lot of politicians today talking about the poor and the needy. You look at some of Fidel Castro's speeches. They're all about filled with rhetoric about the poor. That man didn't care about the poor at all. He cared about using the issue of the poor for his own personal power. This is uh, Judas It says of him, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas was the treasurer of this little group of disciples following Jesus and people would give. And Judas was the treasurer and the more the gifts, the more an opportunity Judas had to embezzle, to steal. So he makes his big speech, or statement I should say, about the poor, but he didn't really care about the poor at all. What he cared about is that expensive oil should have been sold in his mind, and it should have been put into the treasury, and there I'd have more within the treasury to embezzle. And it's very interesting how God does this in the scripture. He looks... (laughs) Not so much at what people do, he looks at the motive. He looks at the why. As God, only God can do. You know, the interesting thing about God is he doesn't just see to you, he sees through you. He can look at your motive in an instant and see what it is. And I just say to myself, Lord, help me, because a lot of times my heart isn't right. And I say the right things. But the motive isn't pure. Help me not to be one of those individuals on the day of judgment that doesn't receive a full reward because I did the right thing with the wrong motive. Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23. This comes from the NKJV translation. It says, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it springs the issues of life. I mean, what what should we be about as Christians? We should be about what's happening inside of us. Why why, why do we do what we do? What's the ultimate motive? Because the day comes where God 
exposes it. I think largely that's what the Bema Seat judgment is going to be about. Do you, do you realize that there's a judgment in your future as a Christian? If you're in Christ, having trusted in Christ for salvation, this is not a judgment of heaven or hell. That issue got fixed the moment you trusted in Christ for salvation. But it is a judgment to determine rewards that we receive above and beyond salvation. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. All Christians are in heaven, but some Christians are more rewarded in heaven than others. Well, who cares as long as I'm in heaven? What do we do with our crowns? We cast them at his feet. What what was Mary, I think it was, what was she doing with that oil? She had something in her hand to pour on Christ, to pay him back, nope. To buy salvation, nope. But it was something expensive that she had to glorify Jesus. That's why crowns and rewards should be of utmost concern to you because there's something in your hands that you can use to greater magnify and glorify and exalt Jesus throughout eternity. And what's in your hand is some kind of reward that we receive above and beyond salvation. And the reason we should be concerned about it is it would be sort of embarrassing, would it not? For everybody to be glorifying Jesus with what's in their hand because of a reward and get to you and get to me and our hands are empty. I mean, I guarantee you on that day, you're not going to say, well, I'm, I'm in heaven, that's enough. God is so good that he saves us by grace. And then in the Christian life, he allows us by his grace to accumulate rewards, which will have the capacity of magnifying and glorifying God. And I believe this very, very strongly and very, very firmly that one of the major issues at the Bema Seat Judgment will be the motive question. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Right there in the Bible. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is why Proverbs says, watch your heart with all diligence. You don't want to be doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Because at that great Bema Seat judgment, you want to be fully rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Laban, Judas, they all had that religious veneer, but their hearts as the book of Isaiah says, we're far from God. I think it's Isaiah 29, verse 13, where God looks at the motive of the people in Isaiah's day and he makes the statement through Isaiah that these people draw near to me with their lips. In other words, they say all the right things. They do all the right things. But their hearts, which is something God alone can see, are far from me. Lord, I don't want to be like Laban. I want to do the right thing for the right reason. Laban here refers back to a true warning that he had received in the dream. It's the second part there of verse uh, 29, Laban says, it's my power to do you harm, but God of your father spoke to me last night. Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. I mean, Jacob could have been killed, but God saw to it that he wasn't. Because God warned Laban, just like he warned Abimelech, Genesis 20, in a dream. It's kind of interesting as you look at verse 29, there's there's actually an awful lot there. But it is, it is in my power to do you harm. Notice what Laban says, verse 29. 
but the God of your father. How come Laban doesn't say the God of our father? Because Laban wasn't a believer. Laban was wrapped up in divination. We saw that in Genesis 30, verse 27. He was wrapped up in something called the household idols. And so here Laban had spent all of this time with Jacob and he never was converted to Jacob's God. He looked at Jacob's God as not our God, but your God. But he obviously believes your God is real because he spoke to me in a dream. But it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. What was Laban doing with God? He obviously believed God had power because he spoke to me in a dream, but he's not our God, he's your God. Well, he is what you call a syncretist. He was probably trying to take the concept of divination, the concept of household idols, the concept of Jacob's God, and sort of trying to roll it all together. Uh, We're all one big happy family at the end of the day. No, we're not. Because God will not mix himself with false gods. God is unique. God is one of a kind. I mean, if you ever get to a point in your belief system where you're trying to make Jesus fit some kind of preordained box, I'll tell you this about the true Jesus Christ. He will come out of that box every single time. Because the the, the God of the Bible cannot be contained. The reason he cannot be contained is he is not interested in being a roommate with some other God. He's interested in taking total control and authority of your life. That's what he wants to do. That is something that we are learning about as we move and walk with the Lord in the growth of our salvation. But there is an agenda at work with God. He doesn't want a corner office somewhere. He wants all of us because that's his nature. He's one of a kind. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, Islam is very interesting in the sense that they believe in Jesus too. But they take Jesus and they convert him to sort of a sidekick of Allah. When he comes back, the Bible knows no such teaching. He is coming back on that white horse, Revelation 19, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Linguistically, that's called a superlative, meaning it's the ultimate. It's the highest. It's like saying the holy of holies. You're not just in a Holy place, you're in the ultimate holy place. Superlative. That's who Jesus is. He's the superlative. You can't, you can't up him further from that position because he's at the highest place he could possibly be. This, I think, is something that Laban did not understand. That's why at the end of the day, he seems to have respect for Jacob's God because Jacob's God spoke to him in a dream. But he doesn't seem to me to be um, an, an authentic disciple because he's hanging on to too much other stuff. Now, we teach over and over here that you're saved by grace. But I'll tell you one thing. If the God of grace comes into your life, he's got an agenda for your life. He wants to completely transform your life. And he will not be content with you as long as we restrict his influence to a corner office somewhere. Do we have the ability to restrict his influence? Obviously we do, or the scripture wouldn't tell us not to do that. What I'm telling you is what God's agenda is. His agenda is complete and total authority over every single area of our life, or even pockets of disobedience that we've held on to for decades. God wants to change that also, because that's his, um, that's his nature. 
So this is the difference between Jacob's walk with God and uh, Laban's walk with God. Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11. God through Isaiah says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, the Lord, I, even I, am the Lord, watch this now, and there is, this is Old Testament, Savior besides me. Well, I'm glad you found enlightenment in Jesus, your particular guru. But I found enlightenment in my own guru over here. Muhammad, Buddha, whatever path you're on. Jesus is not here to be a consultant. Okay, He is the creator He is the Redeemer. As the prophet Isaiah says, there is no salvation in another. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides besides me. Apparently, Laban, for whatever reason, didn't didn't seem to get it. He was a syncretist. He was mixing different belief systems. You try to do that with God, it's like trying to mix oil and water. He won't fit in. There's a natural separation when you try to mix the two. So you get to verse 30 and you really see what Laban is upset about. He's upset about money. He's upset about finances. Well, you really want to see what's motivating people? As the saying goes, follow the money. I mean, this is why the Lord spoke over and over again that you cannot serve both both at the same time. You cannot serve God and mammon. Having mammon is fine. Having money is fine. When your money has you, now we have a problem. If that's happening in a person's life, God has an agenda to dethrone that idol. I think that's the problem with the rich young ruler. Jesus, as he was dealing with the rich young ruler as an individual, could look into his heart and say, your problem is you have another God that's going to eclipse me and need to get rid of that other God, sell everything you have. I don't take that as a command for all Christians the way some do. But in his case, if you're going to be right with me, you've got to dethrone the God that you have. And your problem is finances and money. So just get rid of it. Because if you get rid of it, now we have an empty cup that I can fill. It's a bit difficult to fill a cup that's already full. So Laban's issue here really is finances. And if you look at verse 30, you'll see that. It says, now you have indeed gone away because you you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? What gods is he speaking of? You'll see that there in verse 19. Same chapter, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were in her father's house. This is what's called the the teraphim. If you had in the ancient world control of the household gods, you had a claim that you could make on the entire estate. We saw earlier, I think last week, that Rachel had received no dowry. And this was her way of getting back at Laban. This was her way of saying Laban's wealth now belongs to Jacob. She stole these household idols, which give a person claim to the estate. I'm not saying that what Rachel did was right, but that's what she did. And that's why Laban has traveled 300 miles over a seven days journey to get the teraphim back. Now, he's masqueraded his true motives as 
you know, I didn't have a feast for you. I didn't get, get a chance to give you the goodbye kiss. Um, but I actually came out here to kill you, to harm you. And I would have done that had God not shown up in a dream. And the reason I'm so angry at you is you've taken away my gods, money, mammon, teraphim. We have what are called the Newsy tablets of the time period, which explain this. We have what are what's called the Code of Hammurabi, which is a, a legal code of the time period that explains this. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, The Code of Hammurabi states that whoever has the household gods owns the property. The Newsy tablets record an incident of a person mentioned earlier and states, and here's a bunch of names I can't pronounce, but here we go. If Nashwi has a son of his own, he shall divide the state equally with Wulu, adopted son. But the son of Nashwi shall not take the gods of Nashwi. However, if Nashwi does not have a son of his own, the Wulu shall take the gods. Fruchtenbaum says, no, I'm not speaking in tongues up here, by the way. Fruchtenbaum says, so owning the household gods, based on his study of the Code of Hammurabi and the Newsy tablets, historical documents of the time period, so owning the household gods meant the owner could claim the property. Rachel was not worshiping idols, but rather it was her attempt to gain the property of Laban for her household. And if you don't have this archaeological evidence coming in and informing you of what's going on, it doesn't make any sense as to why Laban would take a 300-mile journey to retrieve something that he could have replaced in a local shop. I used this, I believe, last time. The following from J.P. Free's Archaeology in the Bible gives a good explanation of not only the episode, but also the background of the Newsy tablets. Over a thousand tablets were found in 1925 in the excavation of a Mesopotamian site known as Yorgon Tipi. Subsequent work brought forth another 3,000 tablets and revealed the ancient site as Nuzi, the tablets were written about 1,500 B.C. And they illuminate the background of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One instance will be cited. When Jacob left the home of Laban, Rachel stole Laban's family images or teraphim. When Laban discovered the theft, he pursued his daughter and son-in-law and took a long journey to overtake them. The passage that we're studying here. Commentators have long wondered why he would go to such pains to recover images he could have replaced easily in local shops. The Newsy tablets record one instance of a son-in-law who possessed the family images having the right to lay legal claim to his father-in-law's property, a fact which explains Laban's anxiety. Do you understand and do we understand that prior to the discovery of these archaeological finds, 1925, if you were a Christian reading their Bible, up until the year 1925, you have really not much of an explanation as to why Laban is doing what he's doing. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, why, why travel 300 miles to retrieve the teraphim when you could just replace them locally? And you understand that critic after critic after critic has dismissed the Bible on that grounds, on those grounds. And then lo and behold, in 1925, something shows up in archaeology which completely vindicates and explains what's in this book. And prior to 1925, you had to just accept it on faith. But now post-1925, God says, here's the explanation. People in the archaeological world that we're living in have no excuse. They have no excuse for rejecting the word of God as anti-historical. There is something called the JEPD theory. We've covered it a little bit 
in our introductory lessons on Genesis. It's a school of thought that comes out of higher criticism, European rationalism, where Moses is really not the author of the book of Genesis, we're told. And when I was in seminary, I sat under some of the greatest archaeologists a human being could really sit under. And my teachers told me very clearly that if what we know about archaeology today had been available where they were develop when they were developing higher criticism, denial of mosaic authorship in Europe, if if they had archaeologically what we have, that theory that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible would have been laughed right out of the room. Nobody would have taken it seriously. And yet countless people today teach it and countless people today believe it. Not because of the archaeological evidence, but in spite of the archaeological evidence, against the archaeological evidence. And here's little old me living post-1925. And I say to the Lord, Lord, I got a few doubts about this story. And the Lord says, oh, you don't need to doubt that. You're privileged. You're living post-1925. You've got the Code of Hammurabi available. And you've got the Newsy tablets available. You don't need to challenge my word and second-guess it. And I just say, well, Lord, thank you for the privilege. Pre-1925, they didn't have the privilege. But if you give history long enough, it's eventually going to catch up with what the Bible says. And in this current age of doubt and skepticism, it is fascinating to me that God is allowing discovery after discovery after discovery like this to go forward just to make sure that the natural man, if he wants to go to hell, he can't blame it on anybody but himself. So that's why I bring up these things, the, the Newsy tablets and, and things of that nature. And then what you see is Jacob's response to this verbal attack, verses 31 and 32. And then you'll see Laban's search to find the teraphim, verses 33 through 35. And then you'll see Jacob's response glorifying God, verses 36 through 42. And just for the sake of time, we're going to have to call it a day here. But we'll pick it up with verse 31 next time. I would encourage you for next time to read verses 31 through 42. One of the points we made in the sermon is God wants people saved and he wants them in heaven with him. The truth of the matter is Jesus loves you more than you want to be loved. Jesus values you more than you want to be valued. Jesus wants to use your life more than you want to be used. That's how he thinks about you. But the entry point is the gospel. The gospel is means good news. We call it good news because Jesus did everything to fix our problem. Our eternal separation from God. He is holy and perfect and we are steeped in sin. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time and said, I'll fix that because I love people that much. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And the only thing he asks is that we receive what he has done for us as a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to believe in the one he has sent. He doesn't ask for walking an aisle. He doesn't ask We're showing a a hand. He doesn't ask for church membership. He doesn't ask for a commitment to work at Vacation Bible School. 
We could use your help, by the way, but that's not part of the deal. He simply asks you to believe, which means to trust in what he's done. That's the only condition. And so we invite men and women within the sound of my voice, boys, girls, men, women, to place their faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. As the Spirit convicts them of their need to do this, we invite people to respond to that convicting ministry of the Spirit and to place their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. And that and that alone saves. And then once you're saved, it's just a matter of discovering who you are in Christ and the resources you have. And God then takes the newborn child of God and begins to move them into Growth. But you can't have growth until you have birth. And you can't have birth until the Spirit of God comes into you. And the Spirit of God can't come into you until you've trusted in the provision of Jesus, which fixed the barrier between us and God. If it's something um, that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Our hope and prayer is that many, many people this week at Vacation Bible School at the earliest age possible will hear this message and respond to it as well. Because the world system is not getting any easier. Have you noticed that? We've got to get these kids early before they get jaded with the world system. That's what Vacation Bible School... And the clarity of the gospel is all about. Will you, will you pray with us this week that the Lord would do that? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and your truth and how it speaks to us. Help us to walk these things out in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.